0: There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There was a man in the land of Uz. Job 1 starts like a good story, right? Can't, Can't you just start to... See it and, and be drawn into the book. Who is this Job? Where is this land that he speaks of? You know, much of Scripture is is written as a literary masterpiece. Think of Genesis one one, in the beginning. John one one, and the Word. Talking about these various elements that grab our attention and draw us in. The book of Job is, is, is a great piece of literature, uh, well worth the read and enjoyment, like a good book. But there's so much more in this book than just a good read. It's so much more than just a New York Times bestseller. There are some truths in this book, some examples, this character that we introduced back in August, and we looked at him, in the face of his trials, oh, and I'm getting signals, the kids can be dismissed for Tabernacle Express. <laughs> Apparently not everyone is as excited about the book of Job. <laughs> it is somewhat labor-intensive, so I can understand. Audrey also is very dynamic and exciting. So she'll do a good job with them. But the book develops his character. It gives us, in in chapter 1 and 2, which we already went through, it developed some of his character. It talked about his family, his relations, his work, what he did with his hand, his position in society. What I think perhaps more interesting as this story progresses, and as we saw back in August, is we get a picture into the very presence of God. I mean, no Hollywood director can portray what Scripture portrays to us. They cannot imagine the storyline that's being developed in this book of Job. We get front row seats as God summons his angels into his presence in the heavenly host. And then something a little surprisingly happens. God calls upon Satan as well, that Satan would come and give an account before him. And he enters into this dialogue with Satan that is somewhat mysterious. It's confusing. In fact, I would say most of the book of Job is rather confusing. It's, it's hard to understand. It's, it's hard to digest. And it looks like the bad things that happened to Job happened because of Satan. This was Satan's plan. Satan wanted to test Job. Satan wanted to bring bad things into Job's life. I mean, is that kind of how how we sometimes think? (laughs) If something bad happens to me, it's probably Satan's fault. Uh, Maybe it's a relative's fault, a co-worker's fault. It's the president's fault. I mean, we'll just keep going down the list. We'll blame everyone. Sometimes we'll even start to blame God, right? It's God's fault. Perhaps we'll blame ourselves. Job's an interesting book because Job is fighting, he's wrestling against blaming and accusing God for doing something wrong. All right. And he's wrestling against believing he's done something wrong when he believes he is in the right. And so, why is he going through this? If if God's not angry at Job and punishing him, and he hasn't done anything wrong, why would he support Satan's plan to bring such suffering and trials? And it it would be more palatable if it wasn't so severe, right? You ever watch a movie, and all of a sudden they just start to take it too far? A character like, okay, that's enough. You can stop now. You don't have to take it further. But in the story of Job, as we saw in August, It goes and goes and goes. And where we left off at the end of chapter 2, Job is left with nothing. His health is deteriorating. His friends have traveled from afar. He's probably been in suffering and grieving and mourning for weeks, perhaps even months by the time his friends get there. And they sit with him for seven days and seven nights without saying anything on the dirt, they're not going back to a comfortable mattress at the end of the day, they're not eating Thanksgiving. I mean, I, my family was sick this past week, and there was some misery in that aspect, but we still ate well, we still had a comfortable bed, we we're still sheltered from the elements. In many ways, my week was much better than Job's. And then, in Job 3, he breaks this silence, and that's where we're going to pick up. And Basically, we're going to try to cover a lot of ground, but we're going to kind of jump in and out. And I'm going to be summarizing some of the arguments his friends bring against him and some of Job's defenses. And what patterns do we see in this? And what can we learn? Learn about God, perhaps? But also, what can we learn about how we ought to remain steadfast in the presence of trials? That we would remain steadfast steadfast with the Lord. So this first point that we're looking at, and and that kind of summarizes the message this morning, is Job's wrestling with God. We see Job is wrestling with his trials, all right, and he's wrestling with his friends. And he breaks this silence from chapter 3, and I just want to read a few verses so that we can kind of grasp his state of mind, his emotions, his physical state. Job 3, verse 1, it says that after this, Job opened his mouth and he cursed the day of his birth. Scripture is very raw. He cursed the day of his birth. Perhaps you can relate. Perhaps you've been through something that caused you to question your own existence and perhaps it would have been easier to have never been born. Let the day perish on which I was born and the night that said a man is conceived let that day be darkness may god above not seek it nor light shine upon it let gloom and deep darkness claim it let clouds dwell upon it let the blackness of the day terrify it it's not sound very hopeful and encouraging And what perhaps makes it more difficult is how his friends choose to counsel him in his distress. See, there are three rounds, basically, of arguments between Job 4 and 33. And the first two rounds, you have three friends going at him with arguments, and they start to repeat themselves, and you actually see Job repeating himself a lot in his replies to them as well. There's these three rounds, and I just thought to myself as I read through this, you know, When I'm sick, when I'm discouraged, when I'm distraught, when my emotions are overcome, it's very hard for me to put thoughts together in an organized way that communicates something of worth. Job's not just advocating and defending himself. Job is pulling together by the grace of God the means to fight for God's character integrity as well. This is just about Job. This is primarily about God. The book of Job is primarily teaching us truth about God. And as this wrestling is going on, what I want to look at is how this first round of arguments starts to come to an end. So his friends have brought accusations against him. They're largely accusing him. God punishes the wicked. That's a common theme. So therefore, there is sin in your life, Job, and you need to repent for it. And Job is arguing back. God is still good. God is still sovereign. All right. He's not doing anything wrong. But but I don't believe I'm being punished for sin that I've committed either. And so, in chapter thirteen, he starts to respond to some of these accusations. And I think it's very interesting here in the first few verses, he starts to address the lack of wisdom and his friends. And that's going to be a theme, one of the themes we're going to see in this pattern. And let's look at a few of these verses here, uh, perhaps uh, Job 13 verses 1 through 9, and, and consider what we have to glean from Job's response here. So chapter 13 verses 1 through 9, behold my eyes, my eye has seen all of this. So basically, I've heard and I've seen and know what you're talking about. You're not sharing anything I haven't heard before. My ear, my ear has understood, it has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I'm not inferior to you. So Job's saying, you're trying to teach me, but I, you're not the teacher. And it's interesting, he advocates directly back to the teacher in verse 3. But I would speak to the Almighty and I desire to argue my pit case with God. Right? Job knows his friends aren't seeing things clearly. And, and one of my arguments this morning, a pattern we're going to see, is that Job's ability to practice wisdom is one of the tools, the benefits, of being able to discern truth in his circumstance and situation. That's going to be a great source of relief for him but he would appeal to God. As for you, you whitewash with lies. Worthless physicians are you all. Oh, that you would keep silent and it would be your wisdom. So now he's counseling them. They would be wiser. They would be practicing better wisdom if they simply remained silent. What you started off doing those seven days, you would remain wiser if you continued to do that. How often do we reveal our own foolishness when we begin to speak rather than pause, listen, ponder, and consider what is God doing? Hear now my argument, verse 6, and listen to the pleadings of my lips. Will you speak falsely for God and speak deceitfully for Him? Notice that. The offense isn't primarily against Job, although he feels the offense, and he's going to share more throughout these chapters about how he feels the offense from his friends. But he's also saying that you are misrepresenting God. That's of a primary concern, that his friends in their arguments are mischaracterizing God as if God only does bad things to people who sin. And as if God cannot remain good and allow trials and tests and bad things to happen to good people because he has a purpose. Right? We're going to keep looking at that. What is the purpose behind what God is doing here? Will you show partiality, verse 8, towards him? Will you plead the case for God? Will it be well with you when he searches you out? Or can you deceive him As one deceives a man, they're finding a lot of confidence in their own ability to reason, their own wisdom. Scripture talks about the wisdom of men and compares it to the wisdom of God. We ought to be very cautious in the counsel we give and to make sure that we are accurately representing the character and nature of God. It's very clear in these first few verses in chapter 13 that Job is still discouraged by his friends. And I I think there are a couple interesting verses later on in this chapter, particularly 15, which I had Bobby Burns sing a song based off of this passage. Job reminds his friends, and I think he's kind of counseling himself, my hope, in verse 15 says, is in him, is in God. And though he slay me, all right, though he slay me, he will sustain me in the hope. So Job is being sustained by hope in this trial and test. And it's hope in God. And I believe it is wisdom, wisdom that Job has cultivated, wisdom that God has given him, that allows him to maintain the sense of hope in God while his circumstances continue to darken. There's also something that's hinted in chapter 13 that we're going to see repeated later on, in verse 24, we start to see the weight of Job's trial bearing on him and his challenge. A lot of these arguments back and forth is Job is also wrestling to try to reconcile what is the purpose behind my suffering. I believe there is purpose, God. I believe you are good. I'm just failing to see it right now. And, and in, in verse 24, he says, Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? Now, it's a little hard to discern in this situation. Is Job saying, God, you are my enemy? God, you think of me as your enemy? God, you're treating me like an enemy? Or is he saying something like, I feel I feel like you are treating me as someone who would be your enemy, but I don't believe I am your enemy. You know, I think there's doubt here simply because of verse 15 and what you'll see in other chapters. There's this back and forth sometimes on Job trying to wrestle with his circumstances in the trial and the test that's going on and wrestle with what he knows to be true. It's so easy when our circumstances are difficult that we begin to allow our emotions to direct our thoughts, to direct, even and shape, our beliefs, beliefs about ourselves, beliefs about our world, other people, beliefs about God. Our emotions start to be the tool that changes the way we engage with God and the rest of creation. But Job, I believe, is fighting that his faith would remain steadfast and that truth that God himself would be the anchor and the lens that he would interpret everything else. And so he's going to God for his hope. He's going to God to gain wisdom and understanding in the very trial he is experiencing. And he's going to allow that truth to define how he's to understand himself, how he's to understand others, and how he's to understand God in the present of this current trial in form of suffering. And so Job puts his hope in God to sustain him. And I believe that we are seeing a picture of the power of wisdom when we are facing trials. Job's situation continues to digress, going into another round of arguments and debates. And, and Job, Job responds to this one rather interestingly in 16. He, in case his friends hadn't caught on that their counsel is not being very helpful, you know, uh, they seem to really be stuck on what they think is right, and they're unable to have eyes and ears to hear what Job is trying to communicate to them. All right? They are stuck. And in chapter 16, Job responds to one of their arguments and he says, I have heard many such things, very similar to what we saw there in chapter 13. And he goes on to describe them, miserable comforters are you all. Have we ever been comforted by a miserable comforter? (laughs) Someone who might have even intended well by their efforts, but their comfort just left us in greater misery than before. You ever, if you have children or perhaps you've experienced this with a coworker, hopefully not, not your spouse, but <laughs> this scenario where you feel like you're repeating yourself multiple times and you're trying to say it in a lot of different ways and it just does not seem to be coming through. Well imagine doing that after losing everything, being in immense physical pain, not sleeping, not eating, and and suffering, and being able to continue. Like, I get a headache, I get hungry, I get tired, and I start to respond to my children and others very shortly. I don't represent God well in those moments. Job here, though, in his sense, I feel like he is still maintaining such composure, taking into consider his circumstances and situation, his his mental, emotional, physical anguish. And yet, there is such composure. I really believe this is God's hand sustaining Job. Not Job is so great. I believe God's hand is sustaining Job because Job is looking for godly wisdom and he believes there is power in God himself. Because where is wisdom found? Where is wisdom found? In Proverbs, where does it say wisdom begins? In fear of the Lord. Do, do you remember how God described Job back in chapter 1 and chapter 2? Here is a man who fears God, one who is upright, avoids r- runs from evil, okay? He was the most righteous man on earth. He didn't start living that way when the trial hit. He established his ways before God long before this ever happened. And I believe that's the criteria God was looking for to test and to prove, to teach Satan a lesson, but also to teach us something. That if we will put our confidence, our hope in God, if we will seek to respond to our trials in wisdom given to us from God and not the world, the world will tell you what to do with your life. They'll tell you how to respond to situations. But if we'll turn to God and say, God, how would you have me respond in this situation? I think there is power there and he will sustain us. He will give us the grace that we ourselves would be impossible to do so. And so we see these miserable comforters and he tells them, shall windy words have an end? Or what provokes you that you answer? I also could speak as you do. If you were in my place, I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. saying I could play this game with you and go round and round and round and round and round and what would it profit any of us? Because we are not using godly wisdom in this situation. There's no power behind it. There's no hope in it. And again in verse 19, chapter 16, verse 19, we see this pattern revealed. He had pleased before God as, again as his witness. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on earth. On high, sorry. So he's advocating for his witness in heaven. He's advocating for God who will testify and vindicate vindicate him. He says, my friends, in verse 20, scored me. They mocked me. It's like cheap shots while Job is down and suffering. Maybe you've experienced that. You've been in a distress point. And while you are down, others take advantage of your weakness. They take advantage of your circumstances and, and they just hurt more. They, they dig the wounds deeper. And we know that Job is in anguish. He says, my eyes pour out tears to his friends. No, no, he says his eyes pour out tears to God. Do you see how he's remaining oriented to God through this whole process? He continually redirects the attention. His friends are trying to direct the attention to Job and his circumstances. And Job is continually trying to direct the attention to God. And he brings his case and he pleads before God. We're going to see that reiterated multiple times this morning. He has lost much. He has suffered much. He is pouring out his tears. He goes to God for comfort. When all else fails, when no one else can provide the comfort Job needs, he cries out to God, much like we see David do so often in the Psalms. Chapter 17 is is kind of interesting here as it builds on and, and, and enforces this idea of hope. But now we see Job is somewhat wrestling with where is he going to find his hope. This is that that struggle that I had mentioned a little earlier with him trying to reconcile these, these ideas and these aspects together. And, and I think chapter 17 and chapter 19 start to point more clarity on what he is wrestling with, the belief, the, the, the concepts, the ideas that he is wrestling with and his friends aren't understanding. You see, Job is trying to reconcile his trials with God's character. And he's trying to help his friends see that for Job to confess his sin, because his, his friends are, are literally arguing to him, uh, you don't fear God, you are a sinner. If you would simply repent of your sin, God would stop punishing you. That's their continual argument back and forth. And Job says, there's no comfort in that. I cannot. Where would the comfort be? Where is my hope if I believe what you're saying? Because if I believe what you're saying, I would have to lie about my situation. I would have to repent of sin that I have not committed and then believe that God was unjustly punishing me and will reward me once I repent for sin that I have not committed. Do do you see the issue here? That there is no hope in his friend's argument because their argument requires him to actually lie about his circumstances and believe that a lie, doing the thing that God doesn't want you to do, will actually bring comfort to him and blessing. Do you see why he... like? And they can't get it. He's like, "You, you don't understand. God's character is at stake if I put hope in your counsel. And if I put my hope in your counsel, then I truly have no hope because if God is not a God of character, of justice, of morality, then there truly is no hope and my case will not be vindicated here on earth or even in heaven. And that, that's where we actually see Job take this. In chapter 17, some of this progression And and as it comes to a conclusion in chapter 17, I believe Job is indicating, as he's already referenced multiple times, death is imminent. Job believes God is going to take his life soon. And Job believes God is still good and just in doing it, even if Job has done nothing per se specifically to deserve it this is very difficult for us to understand because we want to believe, ultimately, we want to believe you do something good, God rewards you. You do something bad, you get punished. Right? That we work in a very behavioralistic mindset, a very simplistic mindset. That's how Job's friends are reasoning with him, very simplistic counsel. However, Job knows God more intimately and understands God's wisdom On a broader perspective. And he has searched his own heart out. He'll actually share some of that later on in the book. He has searched his own heart out and knows that this is not the result of punishment. still doesn't understand completely what God is doing. In fact, in in verse 9, in chapter 17, verse 9, it says, yet the righteous hold to his way and he who has clean hands grows stronger and stronger. He says, the righteous don't change their narrative. Only a liar has to change his story. Okay, But a righteous man does not change his story. He holds fast to truth. Truth does not change. God does not change. He's the same today, yesterday, and tomorrow. And so he's holding fast. He goes on and says, But you come on again, all of you, all of you, and I shall not find a wise man among you. He says, therefore. Their shortcoming was that they were depending upon human reason only, human logic only, the wisdom of men only, instead of godliness, instead of God's wisdom. He says, I shall not find a wise man among you. And then he goes into the distraughtness of the situation. My days are past. My plans are broken off. The desires of my heart, they make night into day. The light, they say, is near to the darkness. If I hope for Sheol as my house, if I make my bed in darkness. If I say to the pit, you are my father, and to the worm, my mother or my sister, where then is my hope? Who shall see my hope? So he's saying, if, if I go down, if I, if I believe in your counsel, if I go into the grave, where is my hope then, if it is not in God and his character? I think at this point we start to wrestle with if if Job is innocent and God is good and God is choosing to bring this test and trial into Job's life, not to punish him. What is God trying to do? We're not going to answer that entirely this morning. I'm saving that for January 1st. Well, what I do want to encourage and emphasize to you is that you don't always know how things are going to end. And that's where we have to trust God and remain faithful. We have to remain steadfast in the trials that Job is demonstrating here is because we don't know the ending, and God does know the ending. And I think the picture that Job is portraying to us is that the way we remain steadfast in trials and endure for the ending, is by remaining faithful to the path of wisdom. I think that's the big idea here that that Job is seeking to communicate, is that the path of wisdom keeps one steadfast in the presence of trials. It's the path of wisdom. Proverbs often describes wisdom as a path or a journey or the way. Stay on the path. Stay in the way. Remember the counsel that we as parents often cling to? Raise up a child in the way they ought to go and they will not depart from it. It does not say that they will not face trials. It says that if you will help them to depend upon God, to develop godly wisdom and insight, then when the trials and and the issues in life occur, they won't depart from the path of wisdom. They might experience severe suffering and trials and tests, but they won't depart from the path of wisdom, or they ought not to. They still have a choice, you know. We can do the best. We can give them and share wisdom, but they could still choose to deviate from it, much like many of us do on a regular basis, and that's where we're thankful for God's graciousness and His mercy to us in those situations. But the hope in the trial is found in remaining steadfast through the wisdom that God has given to us through his word in the presence of trials. Now, in chapter 19, Job is still sharing with the pain and suffering, how long will you torment me? Verse 2. In fact, here we see another another element of what we saw in chapter 13 verse 24 where he said, you know, God counts me as his enemy. Here in chapter 19 verse 11, he says, he has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. It feels like stronger language here in chapter 19 than what I saw in chapter 13. Here it seems like Job is almost convinced for whatever reason, he's, he's, he's not sure, but he feels and believes that, that now God has kindled his wrath against him and counts him as an adversary, as his enemy. And so now where does Job go for his comfort and, and hope? It, it's amazing. In that same chapter, in chapter 19, we, we actually see verses that most of us are probably pretty familiar with. And, and we might not suspect to show up here. In verse 25, so he just in verse 11, he just de- declared, God has kindled his wrath against him and counts me as his adversary. And then in verse 25, he says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and on the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, my heart faints within me. For I know my Redeemer lives. That's not a natural response in light of what Job is going through. That's a very unnatural response. It's unnatural to some of his own thoughts that he's already revealed in that chapter. How can he find hope in his Redeemer who lives if he considers himself to be an enemy. You see, again, there's this battle between his circumstances, feelings, and what he knows to be true. And sometimes this is permission for you to wrestle with the realities of your own life and circumstances and challenges. But don't lose heart in thinking that God is not good and that God is not in control. He is still finding his hope in the fact that his Redeemer lives and that even though he passes away, even though his skin will be destroyed, he will stand before God and he will be in his presence and he will find comfort there. He, it appears that he's starting to lose hope of being vindicated here on earth. Wouldn't we all love it when we're in a debate or argument and we want to prove our case? Many of us might have been with family over Thanksgiving. Sometimes there's arguments that occur. Maybe it's theology, maybe it's politics, maybe it's sports, weather, who knows. But we get into arguments. Can you imagine if in your argument you just like appeal to God and be like, all right, God, come and set this straight. And God shows up and be like, yeah, he's right, sorry. Like, I mean, who, who, where do you go from there? You know, like you're going to argue with God? But that's largely kind of what's, what's occurring here. In this situation. They're wrestling. They're trying to argue. They're trying to understand. And bringing it before God and trusting ultimately that God is good. He knows what he's doing and things will be made right once again. And this the last and final round. We're going to kind of go through this more as uh, bullet points than spend as much time uh, talking about it. But uh, this, this final defense, we're at round three. You want to think like a boxing match. Or if anyone was watching soccer, it kept going into overtime. Uh, It's a very difficult sport to make a goal in, apparently. But uh, we're going into the final defense, and Job is going to kind of go back and rehash a lot of his other points. We're we're not going to take a lot of time to review that and go through. But I put down here some bullet points just so you could see how masterful. I just can't. You know this is of God. Because I could never put together an outline of a sermon, a speech, or a paper this well in the physical, mental, and emotional state that Job is in. Okay? Like, like the, that, that he can communicate truths so well and so clearly is just showing his dependence upon God and the strength he is receiving from God. So Job's final defense, again, his friends are coming to him, although at this point it appears that one of the three friends have fallen off. They've given up. They've tapped out. All right? It's just two friends now. And their arguments in this section are shorter and Job's responses are longer. It's almost like as he grows weary and as this marathon extends, God is giving him a second wind. He's not slowing down, even though he's distraught and tired and exhausted. In fact, in chapter 23, it starts off, he's not even complaining so much um, uh, to his friends anymore he 's just bringing his complaint straight to god i 'm done reasoning with them they're not getting it i 'm just going to grieve and groan and lament before God in my situation. says today, also my complaint is bitter, my hand is heavy on account of my groanings. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. Would I lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments? I would know what he would answer me, and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? Would he pay attention to me? There an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. He believes he will be vindicated by God. If not on earth, he believes he will be vindicated by him in heaven. So he's pleading for vindication, much like we would want it in earth in front of those who brought false accusations against us, he knows in the presence of God, all things will be made right and clear. And after going through that, it's interesting, his response in chapter 26, he emphasizes, it's almost like a worship service. We've been lamenting, there's been a number of laments, and then in chapter 26, he goes into like a worship service. Speaking of the unsearchable majesty and goodness, the greatness of God Himself. Such a a beautiful portrayal of how, in a state of such disarray, He can still celebrate and find joy in the unsearchable aspects of God. He's affirming God's majesty, He's affirming God's goodness. 12 through 14, it says, By his power he stilled the sea. By his understanding he shattered Rahab. By his wind the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Behold, these are but the outskirts. Saying God's ways are so superior and above our ways. These are just the outskirts. We weren't there. We don't understand these things. These are the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power... Who can understand? And from addressing that, he goes back into defending his own personal integrity. And it's really interesting in in, in chapter 27, uh, but also in chapter 28 uh, and 31, to actually go through and read about the character and the testimony of his integrity. In many ways, none of us could stand and claim these truths as our own. I could not defend my own personal integrity to the extent that Job can defend his. And in chapter 28, he goes on to address the challenges of searching for wisdom. So once again, we're starting to see cycles, alright? He argues in defense for his integrity. He's not being punished for sin. All right, there's a different purpose, a different reason. We saw that with the integrity. He's still affirming God's majesty and goodness. He's still directing and orienting himself to God, not his circumstances, not his friends. And now he's saying that the challenge here is in the search for wisdom. And, and I found what he said here on wisdom just to be really, again, it's part of it. A, it's a literary masterpiece. Uh, and he puts it in words that, that I could never do so. Well, I'll start off in verse 12, chapter 8, verse 12. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says it is not in me, and the sea says it is not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. But if you jump to verse 23... It says, but God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. And verse 28, And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. These are the same things God described Job as. A man who fears God and removes himself from evil, flees evil. Are you seeing Job's response in in the trials in chapter 1 and 2 was worship God, blessed be the name of the Lord, and do not sin. The positive side, worship. The negative side, avoid sin. The fear of God brings the wisdom that is needed to remain steadfast in the path of trials and to avoid sin and continue to worship. Throughout every single one of these rounds, Job has continued to worship and praise the Lord, just like from chapter 1 and 2. He continues to respond in worship as he goes through these situations. He does not primarily make it about himself. He does display his grief of his circumstances and how distraught he is, but he doesn't primarily make it about himself. And we don't have time this morning to go into chapter 29 and 30 as, as in-depth, or 31, as in-depthly as, as I would like to. Uh, but this is kind of like entering into a, a unique aspect of his argument. He, in, in, in chapter 29, he reflects back on his life. It's almost like looking back on the good days. Uh, you know, I, I do want to read a, couple, a, a little bit actually from here because uh, it, it is such an aspect of... Uh, thinking about his life before this trial. Verse 2, Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness, as I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were all around me. You know, part of the process of grieving and experiencing suffering is not letting it drown out the good memories. We often need the reality, the truth of the reflections of God's goodness in our own experience, in the experience of other people's lives that we've read in Scripture, in the experience perhaps of biographies where we get to see the beginning and the end of the story at the same time, whereas in our life we're living in the present moment but he reflects back. He remembers God's goodness and he knows God doesn't change. If God was good then, God is still good now. The Lord gives, he can take away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And so he finds comfort reflecting back on that, remembering his life, his integrity. It's just, it's it's really a beautiful chapter. In verse 30, Instead of reflecting on the past, he then addresses the present trial, or chapter 30. He addresses his present trial. We talked enough about that, but again, just very descriptive words that describes his suffering. Um, he's becoming like dust and ashes. Uh, here again, we see that pattern where he feels, you have turned cruel to me, God. Verse 21, chapter 30, verse 21, it says, you have turned cruel to me with the might of your hand. You persecute me. So we see that, once again, that that theme has come where he's wrestling. You lift me up on the wind, you make me ride on it, and you toss me about in the roar of the storm, for I know that you will bring me to death. Here as he comes to the final argument, death is once again imminent. And then, in chapter 31, he puts together his final defense. It's almost like the closing argument that a lawyer might put together, where he just runs through a summary of things, advocating once again for his integrity, a long list, a huge resume, not just of the things he didn't do, but of the things he did do for the poor, for the weak, for the sick, for the fatherless, for the one wandering in the land. In fact, he says, he has not hidden any of his sins. In verse 33, he says, I have not hidden anything, If anyone, he basically opens it up. So his friends accused him of sinning and he's being punished by God because of his sin. And he opens it up. If anyone has an accusation against me, let it stand. If anyone does, how many of us could do that? You know, our families would be the first up and then everyone else, right? We would all have some accusation against us. No one can bring an accusation against Job. Saying If there is one, he would accept it, and he would then confess it. Right? Job is not being prideful, per se. He's willing to confess and own up to his sin, and he will be given the opportunity to be humbled. We'll look at that on January 1st with the final sermon in this series. So here we find ourselves wrestling through a very difficult situation and circumstance. And we're left with wondering, how will this end? I mean, some of us know how it ends. But perhaps you're not at that point in your own trial. And you're left, kind of like Job at this state, wondering, how will this end? Will I die soon? Will I be vindicated before God in heaven? It seems like the comfort that Job can give us in the presence of our trials, especially when they endure, when they last and last and last. I think of people like Johnny Erickson Tata, right, who has suffered and been in pain her whole life, but fights for joy. Not everyone's trials end while they're here on earth. Some of their trials and tests, suffering ends once God calls them home. Okay? but I believe that it is no coincidence that Job responded with steadfastness in the presence of his trials. I believe the reason why Job was able to remain steadfast and continues to be steadfast is because he had chosen to take the path of wisdom well before he ever experienced his trial. And if you look in Proverbs, it will direct you to practice certain spiritual disciplines as the way of wisdom. It's not just left for the elite, like Job. It's left for those who will put their faith in God, who will demonstrate faithfulness by being in His Word, by fellowshipping with God privately in our homes, perhaps with our families, singing and reading and praying corporately together. When we practice these things, we are basically dining at God's table of wisdom ingesting it, being strengthened by it in preparation for the battles, the tests, the trials we may face. And so my challenge for you is whatever point you are in your own trial, test, suffering, do not lose hope. Do not give up faith. Discipline yourself. Maintain a steady diet of pursuing God's wisdom, consuming God. Wisdom is found in God. Pursue God. Consume Him and depend upon Him for the strength through that situation. We can be thankful for God's wisdom that carries us through trials. There's that Thanksgiving tag. Trials, is hard to be really excited about and thankful, but God's wisdom that we have something, that He's given us something to sustain us, isn't that an act of mercy and compassion and grace? that a tool has been given to us to sustain us through that process. That's how we saw James summarize the book of Job. He said it illustrates God's compassion and mercy to those who remain steadfast in the presence. So with faith, we're going to believe this to be true, and then on January 1st, we're going to see it actually manifest itself in a limited amount, and then through faith, we're going to believe in its full, complete, fulfillment in the future with God. Uh, we were going to close with a special, uh, but my wife was going to be part of that and she's not well. So I'm going to close us with a word of prayer, kind of like our, our benediction, uh, benediction reflection. Just encourage you to ponder these things. Uh, go back and, and review part perhaps of the chapters of Job. You have a little outline now in your bulletin. and and see if you can see these patterns, see if you can pick it up, see if perhaps it can strengthen you in your own experience. Uh, Let us pray.